This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta. Today I'm talking with Tom Knight, who came to prominence in the 90s as a first call drummer for producer Dallas Austin and toured and recorded with TLC, Adam Nitty, Michael McDonald, and many others. After more than a decade of solid road work, Tom took a step back from touring and playing live and began a somewhat accidental second career in voiceovers. As an Emmy Award-winning voice actor, Tom's credits include Disney, BMW, and Crown Royal. Tom is still active as a session drummer, mostly in his home studio in Atlanta. If you want to help support what we do here at Working Drummer Podcast, we invite you to become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer, and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive video content from our former guests. We're adding to it regularly, and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. Once again, that's patreon.com slash working drummer. Also, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Feel free to contact us on those platforms, as well as through our homepage at workingdrummer.net. So let's get to it with this renaissance man, Mr. Tom Knight. I hope this uh, Yeti Yeti Blue mic does your, your, oh, voice, sh- does yeah. your voice justice, man, man. dude, let me tell you something about that. I mean, <laughs> you can roll or whatever. But, you know, I have, I have been using for the longest time, and I still use, um, my old Rode NT2. I don't even remember what I paid for that thing, but I can tell you this. It was just a few hundred. Yeah. And then a few months, or I'm sorry, a few years ago, my father was interested in what I was doing. And, mm-hmm. and I had mentioned that, you know, all the big guys use something, the TLM 103 or U87 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And a couple of days later, I had a brand new U87 sitting on the... It was really a really nice <laughs> gift. And and I A-B compared them, uh-huh. right? And just the levels, it's a tremendous difference. But here's what's funny. And it was an eye-opener. Um the minute you send that signal into just the garden variety, usual four to one, simple compression, typical for VO mm-hmm. and any other, I, I, I have my room tweaked for, I know what the dimensions are and have undertaken the, the elaborate process to figure out where all the standing waves are. And I notch those out. Right. By the time you do that, the difference is minuscule. I don't even know if I can tell the difference. Really? Now, audiophiles could probably, but I can't. And certainly none of the producers that hire me uh, give the first shit about any of that. <laughs> right. You know? Right. So it, it, I feel like I'm learning the same lesson I did before with music. You know, you can have great drums, and God knows I love Yamaha. I've been with them since 94. Mm-hmm. And don't play anything else. Mm-hmm. But you can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the player, right? It's not. Yeah. The, it's not the. It's not the thing. It's the. It's the person. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. Same with mics. So this is going to be long-winded <laughs> story to come back around and say, "This will be fine." <laughs> awesome. Um, so you and I have have met several times, um, and I know kind of the the highlights of your career. But I don't know where you come from. I don't know what, how it all happened. Where, where are you from? So, was born in Pennsylvania, Uniontown. Okay. I'm a northerner, Yankee. Yeah, I was trained to say Yankee <laughs> from a young age. 
And um, yeah, I don't particularly come from a musical family, although my biological father is an amazing flute player and guitarist uh-huh. and can sing a little bit too. Um, so I suppose I have to factor that in, but I wasn't raised by him. I was raised by, his name was Tom Schultz, mm-hmm. which was my original name, Tom Schultz Jr. Uh-huh. Um, but when I was two, they split up and I was adopted into the Knight family and given that middle and last name. Got it. And so was raised by Ken Knight. And that's what I mean by when I say I wasn't particularly, I wasn't raised particularly in a musical family, but mm-hmm. we loved to listen to it. Yeah. And I must have been about six years old when, you know, they were getting into the blacklight posters, my parents, and listening to, you know, Iron Butterfly and yeah, yeah. Inagata DeVita, of course, which I think his name is John Bushy, um, who not only played a, an amazing drum solo in that song, but he also built the drums, as I understand it, oh, wow. that he played. Yeah, yeah. And it's a very simple idea. But it was it had rhythmic motif and it 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 was its own piece of music within mm-hmm. a larger piece of music and I was absolutely captivated by that yeah and it wasn't long into the first grade that I was you know doing the proverbial pots and pans with wooden spoons yeah same beating everything right me too yeah so that lit a fire under me that never died uh-huh. you know. Um, didn't hurt that there was a guy next door who was too old for me to play with. He was like 16 years old. His name was Jeff Hand, funny enough. <laughs> he had this beautiful sparkle drum set that I used to sneak over because I wasn't supposed to be there and watch him play or just stare at that thing. Yeah. I just was in love with it. Right. You know, I just liked being around it. And I had no idea why I felt this way. I just did. Yeah. And so, I had the same experience with my, my cousin Jesse, who was like also older than me. He was probably 10 years older than me. And we didn't even live in the same town, but whenever we'd visit my uncle, he was like, you know, in middle school or high school and he had this drum set and I would be like four or five and just like captivated by <laughs> Right? Yeah. And you don't even know why it is, but it's that first love. Yeah. I mean, I didn't like anything else up to that point as much as I liked that and really since. I mean, there have been a lot of loves, but right. that was the big aha. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I feel really fortunate and blessed to have been slapped upside the head with it at such a young age, mm-hmm. right? A lot of people, as I have learned, go a long time in their lives without really ever finding that thing that, right. that moves them. And I feel really bad about that. I, I, One of the reasons I taught for so long is I tried to maybe try to make up for that, mm-hmm. you know, in others, if they might have been missing it. Let me come along, hopefully inspire, you know, right. um, show you a couple of things and demystify it. Yeah, yeah. Well... Anyway, so they bought me a, one of those Toys R Us drum sets. Ugh. And funny enough, Jeff Hand from next door comes along. He sneaks over to my place and proceeds to beat that thing to death. Oh, no. And it was, it was gone. Ugh. But I kept that crappy symbol that they, you get with them and the little drumsticks. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have them today. I wish I did. Yeah. What, a, what an artifact. But I did. I kept them for many, many years. And then in the sixth grade, um, I finally was able to join the band in elementary school which met like once or twice a week in the lunchroom and i got to play drums and so folks rented me a ludwig five and a quarter by 14 yeah. 10 lug superphonic that i still have oh cool and uh that's the beginning man yeah yeah so at at what point um in your development do you say like i want to do this for a living i can do this this is a job that people do 
And <laughs> like, when does that switch? I think that happened in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, Me too. Yeah. Like, because up until then, like, I saw my dad. My dad was a lawyer. You know, I just thought like that's what you do. You get a job. You go to an office. You. But at some point in high school, I was like, oh, this is this is a different path. I looked at my drum teacher in high school, and I was like, look at what he does. He plays out. He teaches lessons. He does. You know. So. Yeah, and and I don't know about you, but back in my day, back in my day. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry, uh, we didn't have middle school, so oh. it was one through K through seven. Okay, and then eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve were all five years of high school. So when I start, when I started, it was in the sixth grade. I had two years of elementary school band education, which is again minimal because once, twice a week for mm-hmm. thirty minutes before lunch, right? You know, uh, in the lunchroom, you're not going to get a lot done. At some point in that period, my grandparents. Um, started paying for my private lessons, mm-hmm. which uh, I took right here down the street at DeKalb College mm-hmm. by a guy named Sherwood Mobley, who has since departed, sadly, but an amazing teacher and would handwrite some of the more complex uh, drum set studies that would drive me up the wall. I still have that those handwritten yeah, manuscripts. Yeah. But to answer your question, it wasn't until high school that I finally said, you know what? Wait a second. Uh, Neil Pert from Rush is killing it. I, I, I want to do that. Like, yeah. he was my first real hero. Mm-hmm. I definitely got into John Bonham for the right foot. I definitely got into um, Buddy Rich for the hand speed. Mm-hmm. As far as, you know, because at that time, you're you're blown away by those kinds of chops and, and your inability to do them. Right. Musicality was something that was still far away. Right, I right. had no concept of <laughs> trying to fit into a musical ensemble. No, it was, I want to be able to do that with my foot. Yeah. I want to be able to do that with my hands. And I want to play in front of that many people. So, yeah, in high school, somewhere probably around the ninth or 10th grade, I think it was like, ding, this is me. I don't want to do anything else. Right. And subsequently grades suffered as a result <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i was the same way i wasn't really interested in anything else and you know my grades were kind of good enough to get out but <laughs> i was, was taking a ninth grade english as a senior um my counselor in high school pulled me in uh, like i don't know sometime after christmas and says you might not walk with your class. What do you mean? <laughs> Apparently, I failed the ninth grade English and had forgotten. <laughs> and they didn't think about it either. And so now I'm, you know, I'm a senior and I'm in a ninth grade English class, and it's, it's e- the easiest thing in the world, of course. Right. But how funny is that? I, I almost got, you know, tripped up by, you know, some composition class from four years earlier. Right. But I, I, I. I finally got there. I made it just in time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in, in the interest of pursuing this this career, like you're you're coming to the end of high school, are you are you thinking I have to go to college for this or I just have to get out and start I was an absolute idiot. <laughs> Most of us are when I, we're eighteen. <laughs> I thought I really had the expectation, God knows how, that I was just gonna be picked up man Mm -hmm. you know one day when i got out of bed and ate a bowl of cereal i'd look out the window and there'd be a limo i mean what fool (laughs) would really honestly think that would happen but i really did yeah and and looking back on it i know why i i I now know why and it was because um you know school has a funny way of 
putting everything together for you. Yeah. So you learn, even if, even if you're not aware of it, you learn, or I learned uh, that I didn't have to do anything but be good. Right. And school, um, kind of teach, it, it just shows you what you have to be good at. doesn't tell you how to get there or right. carve your own path, whatever. Right. Right. And, and so I just kind of dumbly thought that's how life was. I, yeah. it did, I didn't connect the dots that, oh, wait, now it's my turn. And I'm going to flash forward a bit here and then come back. Yeah. One of the principal tenets I held at AIM, I taught there for 21 years. Atlanta Institute of Music. Atlanta Institute of Music. I interviewed one of your former students a couple weeks ago. Uh, I had um, Gerard Sullivan in here. Yes, sir. And he spoke highly of you and Ah. and of AIM and and all that. But, yeah, I was about to jump forward to to your uh, teaching tenure, you know, in relation to the conversation we were having about going to college and what do you learn and how do you get there and it kind of sets it up for you so yeah go ahead well one of the things that i used to say to all the students was look if you call me if you graduate here and then you call me later with a question about something first of all please feel free to do so Mm -hmm. but understand that i'm going to see that as a failure on my part Hmm. if i haven't made myself obsolete in this year i haven't done my job my point is to prepare you to do whatever, to know how to do whatever you need to do without my help. Mm-hmm. As weird as that sounds, I I love to hear from these guys, and I do. And thankfully, most of the time, it's it's a "Hey, how are you doing?" kind right. of thing rather than I had a question that we didn't cover in class, you know. <laughs> and I would, oh no, my my point, and, and anybody listening who went to any of my classes and will remember me saying this: my job is to prepare you to not need me because I didn't get that. Mm-hmm. I want to give, just like I want to give my kids things that I didn't grow up with, you know, like air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. grew up in a hot house. Yeah. My kids are going to freeze. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I, you know, I want the drum students to have what I, I didn't have, which, uh, and again, no offense to, to those who, who taught me back then. I, I love them dearly. Mm-hmm. Um, Mr. Hodges, Melvin J. Hodges Jr. was my band director in, in Stone Mountain High School, and he is still kicking. Wow. He just had his, like, 80 something birthday. I want to say 88th or something like right. that. And um, I love him to death. But I blew it. I didn't know. And so for, for two years, I graduated in 1986, and it wasn't until 88 that, you know, people in my family were like, um... We think you need to go to college, and we'll help you pay for you need it. To think yeah. you, we think you need to do something. It was an intervention. There is no doubt. Because yeah, I was just like, at that point, chasing dames and getting a tan. Right. What was I? We talk about time wasted. Were you playing at all? Were you just, no. like, just... I was literally going to the pool. Yeah. Like hanging out, and you know, my buddy would was Bobby Rogers, an amazing guitarist, um, the the BLR trio for anybody out there. He he went to Berkeley. He taught at Berkeley for seven years, mm-hmm. um, but we were in bands together in high school. And you know, he would he was going to Georgia's, no, I'm sorry, University of Georgia at the time, UGA, Athens in yeah. Athens. And he would come home for the summer, and he had a bodyguard. I, I'm saying everything wrong today. <laughs> um, when he would come home. For summer break, he was a lifeguard at oh. his pool. So I would get in for free, and that's all I did. Right. I didn't, you know, I hung out with him and just tried to ignore the fact that he was doing the right thing and I wasn't, mm-hmm. you know. And I took odd jobs and, again, like just chased girls and generally did everything wrong. I wasn't <laughs> practicing. Yeah. I didn't do anything, you know. Um, 
so I got to Georgia State finally, and that's when I met the likes of Jack Bell, Robbie Kirshner, um, Sonny Emery. Mm-hmm. You know, he, yeah. he had gone there and would come back to teach sometimes. Mm-hmm. That is when I suddenly realized wow, there are all these other drummers I can't believe I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of Dave Weckl. I'd never heard of, of Vinnie Kaliuta. I knew of Steve Gadd's playing, but I don't know that I could have pointed to his name. Mm-hmm. You know, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Who didn't know that, right? right? I mean, at least familiar with that amazing part. And so it was like starting over. It's like, oh, I remember a guy named Terry Vineyard. Uh, pulls me aside in Jack Bell's office and says, I want you to hear this drum part. And what he played for me was Spur of the Moment, which is from the Dave Weckl Contemporary Drummer Plus One package. Uh-huh. I think it's also on one of his records, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. And at the end of it, I was like, oh my God, this is the most elaborately programmed drum part I've ever heard. And the guy, he's like, that's, no, that's a guy. <laughs> and I was crushed instantly. I was like, oh, I thought I had a lock on this. I suck. I got none of this. Mm. And so, yeah, it was me and that piece of music. And, a, you know, I had an old reel-to-reel um, tape machine that you could slow down mm-hmm. to half speed, exactly half speed, mm. and proceeded to cheat my way into his performance, <laughs> wrote it all out took about three weeks yeah. and then i took spent several months trying to learn how to play it uh-huh. on a neil pert sized drum set yeah which was <laughs> ridiculous and jack bell caught wind of it about six months later and said okay um i can't believe you did this but because uh, you could have been working on your marimba studies <laughs> oh, don't get me started on the marimba man. but he, he was really cool with me he said i said he said let me print that we're gonna we're gonna have this added to the percussion performance recital we're gonna have you play that cool so the game was on i I, now i had to i had to learn how to play it right you know and people were going to be able to if they could read along with my handwritten charts and i say could because of my handwriting right because of the difficulty although the difficulty was probably a a thing also because i hand wrote the whole whole solo Mm -hmm. and so uh yeah that's I don't know if that takes you where you wanted me to go, but that's... Yeah, no, yeah. we're certainly getting there. Okay. Um, and, you know, when I first moved here and and started hearing your name, everybody everybody was saying, oh, like, you got to check out Tom. He's like, he's Atlanta's Dave Weckl. Oh, wow. That's... And so, but what I'm wondering super is, nice. I mean, from, from what I've seen in your playing, like, they weren't wrong, but how much, how much did Weckl... Um, like how big of an influence has he been on you? And do you consider him your main guy or? Um... Yeah. <laughs> Let me just cut to the chase. Definitely. I, I mean, I didn't to this day, man, when I sit down, um, full disclosure, I don't really know who I am as a mm, drummer. Yeah. Uh, I never did. Mm-hmm. I never did. You know, uh, I'm kind of dumb like that. You know, I just sort of get into something because I'm inspired by somebody Mm -hmm. and I think to myself, okay, they're doing it at least the way I want to do it. And it seems to work. So let's, let's imitate that. Right. And I, as a result, I don't have a problem with, with people copying others. I know there's a raging debates about that and, and I'm always, I don't get into them, but Mm -hmm. I always secretly side with anyone who is okay with, copying your mentors i don't know how else you do it honestly yeah yeah yeah. um as babies we 
imitate our parents. That's when we learn to speak, right? You know, if you think about it. So why would I stop doing that later? Mm-hmm. It just it occurred to me. Anyway, so yeah, I mean, in the absence of having any original ideas, <laughs> I would just think, okay, well, what would that guy do right. in this situation? And it didn't always work mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. The most obvious of which might be that I'm not capable of pulling off what that guy's able to do. But the other thing is that maybe the situation isn't right for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or both of them at the same time, which is even worse. Right. So, you know, after a while, though, you start figuring out. And that be- you start figuring that out. And that became the question I began to ask. Rather than how are they doing what they're doing? Why yeah, yeah. are they doing what they're doing? That's actually, the, to me, the more important question. But you kind of got to go through the how are they doing it first. Yes, this is a process we've we've talked about before in in terms of emulation, like it's it's all well and good to emulate someone's result and to just like try to sound like they do and get the result they did, but it's it's a deeper level to try and emulate their process. And if you emulate if you emulate their process, your result might not be exactly the same because it's going to have more of you in it, it's going to have more of your organic just nature in it, but that you know the the process that somebody you respect goes goes through uh, will most likely yield a good result for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, we were talking about um, lost artifacts and things that I, you know, uh-huh. drumsticks. I wish I still had. You know, the very first ones I ever had. Right. One thing that I do have um, that is somewhat germane to what we're talking about here is a letter that Weckl wrote on my behalf defending me against an online... Oh, God, the word escapes me. Troll? Uh, Troll, thank you. That's it. That's the word I was looking for. (laughs) I think the reason I couldn't think of it is because back then, you didn't call him that. Right. But I I had this... um, It was back in the 90s, mid-90s. I had a a vanity website because I thought I was supposed to. America Online. Uh Uh-huh gave you two megabytes of space per screen name, and you could have up to seven screen names attached to the one main one, the main one being the first of seven. Uh So I took that opportunity to blow it out to 14 whole megs (laughs) and proceeded to using, I don't know, hot dog or something like that, whatever the tool of the time was. before. This was long before... Adobe had their products. You could just write it. You could write your website in Notepad if you coded it correctly Mm -hmm. and just upload that and it worked. And that's how I did it. And I had this horribly vain website. You know, I had my, you know, I pictured myself on the front, like trying to look cool with some sunglasses or something in front of a drum set. You know, what else do you do? I don't know what you do. It was the modern days. It was, it was a selfie back then. Yeah. You just didn't know what that was. And we've all either taken those pictures or envisioned ourselves in those pictures because we grow up with modern drummer. And you know what I realized about, well, brief aside, just about drum pictures, like so many of the pictures that I have taken and that I've seen others take are, are informed by modern drummer advertisements not the articles but like just the the symbol advertisements the drum advertisements the guy looking so whatever in front of the thing holding the thing whatever and when my wife and I first got together she'd see some of these pictures I had taken and she's like what what is this oh yeah <laughs> like, oh my that's some of my first promo pictures along those lines didn't end up on that website but I had them right we, we went to <laughs> we went to Stone Mountain yeah and I like was dressed in like mostly a suit almost <laughs> standing on top of the rock with there, like. a rock and, and like a <laughs> snare drum on its side with my foot on it yes 
you know. Yes. Are you kidding me? Oh man. You know, everything everything <laughs> from that sort of thing all the way down to the Olin Mills pose, <laughs> which is decidedly uncool. Mm-hmm. Um but anyway, so yeah, so this guy of course you've got your email address on there for people to reach you, right? Should you need my services. Right. Should you recognize my awesomeness and want based to on secure this, my services? Based on this photo. <laughs> um, proceeded to just rake me over the coals, and I was heartbroken. Mm. I, 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 I should have seen it coming, but it ruined my whole vibe in, for a long time, and I, I eventually forwarded that message to Dave because in there somewhere he was just like you're just a Dave Weckle wannabe and all this stuff you know clone or whatever um probably a lot of truth to that but for some reason it cut right. and I I uh sent that to him and I didn't hear from him for a while and then about a week later I was blind carbon copied on his response to that guy in which he proceeded to pull apart his that guy's paragraph sentence by sentence and address with a paragraph of his own every sentence that guy had read wow. had written and in it he was especially when he got to the part where the kid was saying you know you're just a day well weckle clone he was like you know it's okay to have heroes what you don't you yeah. don't have any also Take it from me, when I listen to Tom's performances, I hear a lot more than just my influences, which was really nice of him to, to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that made me feel good, you know? I mean, to have a guy like that defend you right. with such pleasant things, you know? It was, it was one of the more humbling times in my life. I mean, you come from this sort of... I mean, maybe I was being a little weak, you know, by by even being affected by it, but I was man. I was oh yeah, hurt by that. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's and then but then to him to turn around and do that, I was like, you, you were already my hero, but now okay, now, like I have this this new love for you, dude. There's nothing, I won't do for you. Right. I mean, you know, right. You're my you're my bro now. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> have you have you met him? Like, have you, oh, many many times. Yeah. yeah. Oh, heck yeah, man. I mean, um, had you met him before that? Yes, um, we had only been email pals at that point mm-hmm. when that guy, the troll, showed up. Right. For maybe two years, I met him in 94 playing drums with Adam Nitty. We were opening up for Mike Stern and Weckle was playing for Stern. Mm-hmm. And that's when we exchanged numbers, you know. Actually, it started with, well, the AOL account. He didn't give me his number yet. He just said, here's my AOL account. And I was like, oh, I guess I better get an AOL account, <laughs> right. which is how that started. <laughs> um, so I was like, okay, I'm going to open one up just so I can talk to him. Yeah. You know? And then eventually I got his number and we, we, we chatted. And yeah, just over time, it, that, that, he, he, was, he was just open. He mm-hmm. was cool with taking my call when right. a lot of people wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. I, I, believe me, man, I'm still, I still get starstruck around that guy. If my phone ever rings and it's his number, I'm like, I'm going to screenshot that. Post <laughs> right, it. You right. know. I still freak out, man. Yeah. The guy is still, you know. So like the last, it, back in March, he was here with Osnoy and mm-hmm. he's, he very, very kindly set aside a whole day for me. Yeah. I went and grabbed him and he, we, I took him back to my house and, you know, and we stayed there the whole day until it was time for his performance and he got to meet, you know, my kids and, finally meet my wife in person and yeah we hung out down in the basement 
played drums. Yeah. And it was fun. Man. That's so cool. Yeah. That's great. It's an amazing blessing, man. Yeah. really fortunate to work with a local producer named Dallas Austin who put me on all kinds of things like Monica, Stevie Nicks, um, I think he's, he's a little more than a local producer, <laughs> but, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't have said that. Yeah, yeah. He's a global producer right. that happens to live here locally. Yes. Does he still live here? Uh, he has Austin-Tonian, which is his big home over there off Tuxedo. Right. Um, with all the other, you know, like uh, the football coaches and right. such live. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, so I... I was very very fortunate to have been chosen as the drummer for TLC on their all the tours from 98 to 09 mm-hmm. whenever they went out which yeah. wasn't all the time but when they did I was always the guy that got the call and uh, particularly on the longer legs I, you get really locked in to being and you would just feel so comfortable to the click to that style to the how hard you have to hit yep. and how consistent that has to be in an, an arena yeah okay um, balancing that with triggered sounds that are also happening as well as the, the, the mic drums that when I would come back home and get called by Randy Hexter for example or Adam Nitty to play on um, their records I, I would tell them look I need a couple of months and I'm not being lazy here I actually have to undo all of that other the road chops. Yeah, man. Yeah. It's it, I, Some people just are able to instantly make that switch. I'm not one of them. Mm-hmm. I have to really spend a lot of time uh, working those things back into wh- where I feel like they need to be if we're going to lay it down on a record. Right. That's And what you're talking about is like the elasticity, the flow, the ideas, the improvisation, all that. The touch. Yeah. Right. All of that. I mean, everything. Even the rebound of the different symbols right. the tuning of the drums actually the tuning of the drums i don't think i changed quite that much from genre to genre mm-hmm. unless it was a bonafide bebop tune or something like that um i was i kind of cheated in that respect you know and i never never got any blowback from any of the pro- producers uh-huh. but uh, but the symbols you know um the types of symbols the way they would feel yeah. even the angles sure and just the choose. way you play them right like you know it's completely yeah, different totally yeah um, so we, we skipped over a bunch of stuff. At what point do you come to Atlanta? And okay, so, so wait, you, you grew up in Pennsylvania, but then came to college here. So we, I was born in. Let's say that again. I'm born in Pennsylvania. Okay, but about the time that I was adopted into the Knight family, they're all from here and Henderson, Kentucky. So Southerners. We came down here and been have been down here pretty much ever since. Got it. Okay, so. Born a northerner, but spent most of my time as a southerner. Got it. So I kind of have to claim the south also. Yeah, right? you know? yeah, yeah. And it, it, it's real easy to, to fall into a southern slang if I want to, you know, <laughs> um, or if I it allow probably, it. It probably comes in handy once in a while. Every in your, once in a while in, in, the, in the VO world, they're saying, we need a little bit of a... <clears throat> Southern accent. Okay, I got yep. you. Yep. Do you want NASCAR? <laughs> Do you want huge guy at the drive-thru at... At uh, you know Wendy's, right. I, I got you. You man. want full of shit politician? Like, <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I can hook you up, yeah. man. Um, but yeah, so I spent the majority of my life down here, um, with a brief stint back up to Chicago when my dad got re- relocated for his gig. 
but that was only a year and a half, mm-hmm. and then we're right back down here. So, um, did you graduate from Georgia State? No, so. I'm still, dude. I'm still in school. Like, I so I went there for two years. I think from '88 through '89, those two years, and then I got married at the time, mm-hmm. and you know we were way too young. And it, it, we didn't have any kids or property or anything, so it was almost like an annulment, was, right? You know, <laughs> but that that took us both out of school. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, uh, I went from high school to doing nothing for a couple of years, to going to college for a couple of years, to do back to doing nothing for a couple more years. I mean, I really had like, gosh, the better part of a decade from '86 to mid to to early to mid '90s, yeah, where I just was just going wherever the wind blew me you right. know i mean it was, it, i had no direction no idea what i wanted to do what i was supposed to do you know and didn't care right. <laughs> which is even worse right it'd be one well, thing and did you did you have a sense that you wanted to play drums for a living and that you wanted to get these kind of gigs but you just didn't know how or didn't have the sort of self-determination right. the self-motivation to all of the above yeah uh i yeah i i wanted to I still wanted to play. I still wanted to be a gigging musician. Um, and so it's somewhere after my first wife and I split up, I, w- I stayed in that apartment that we lived in and somehow got hooked up with Jeff Sipe. Oh, yeah. And he used to live off East Lake Drive up in an attic. <laughs> Of some one of those big houses. Why doesn't that surprise me? Not at all. I've only met him a couple times, but he seems just like such an esoteric. Oh, it was uh, amazing. He, we would go. I'd go over to his house. I don't remember if he had a ride or not, but I would go over to his house, and he had an Eames drum set set up out in the garage, which was separate from the house and the attic where he lived. I'd go over there, and, and the first thing we would always do is grind bean, make coffee. That was our. How we started the day. Yeah. Then we would get out into the into the uh, garage and, and he, it's two drum sets, but one of them was the the prized Eames, mm-hmm. and he always let me play that. You yeah. Know? Um, and he'd set a Franz metronome with the light and turn out the lights, and we would practice Whoa. in the dark to that and for hours. Wow. Uh, and and odd meters, whatever. It was it was amazing and i remember feeling like i was in pre- the presence of royalty yeah. at the time cuz he had he was so revered is still but right, at the right. time and, and and young up and coming drummer are you kidding right so this was during aquarium rescue unit days very like, much so the height of it one time uh we came out of that garage and bruce hampton was standing there <laughs> and he looked I, I will never forget this he looked into my shook my hand looked in my eyes and stared for a minute and said, September 16th. <laughs> yeah. He nailed my birth date. Yeah. He he did that. I know, right? I, yeah. I didn't know that at the time. I was like, did I, Jeff, did I tell you my... He, he just laughed and was like, no, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I and I only met Bruce a couple times, but I had I had a similar experience. He, like he didn't guess my birthday, but um, he uh, I used to live in L.A. Um, and the first time I met him, he shook my hand and he looked into my eyes the same way you're describing. And mm. and with with my hand still in his, he said, "I've seen you before." And I was like, "Oh, really? Where?" And he said, "Wilshire Boulevard." And my wife and I lived a block off Wilshire in L.A. <laughs> yeah. That man 
was amazing. Sometimes I think it was like a party trick. Sometimes he messed with it and, you know, because from, from people I know who were really close to him, they've said, like, sometimes he was fucking with people, mm-hmm. but other times there was, like, a genuine, you know, sixth sense or aura reading or whatever you want to call it. Like, he had something. I couldn't explain it any other way. Yeah. He, I, I'm not... Uh, I, I don't doubt for a minute that what you're saying is true. Yeah. That first meeting with him, with him though was for me out of this world. I, yeah. I could not explain it. And what's funny about it, even funnier to me about it, is that where we were, uh, we were standing just outside that garage, and Jeff had arranged this mobile of garbage <laughs> hanging from the tree. <laughs> I'm talking forks, coffee cups, the plastic gallons of milk empty, of course. All this crap blowing in the wind. And, he, and, and I don't know if you know this, but what he would do is he would get out there with a practice pad and play to whatever it was doing. Oh, that's out. Man. So we were standing under that. Yeah, yeah. While this was happening. Right. Out of this world, man. Um <laughs> It reminds me of Michael Carvin told me when he first moved to L.A., he would take his drum set out to the beach and just, like, play along with the water. Yeah. <laughs> Some people can do that. Yeah, man. You know, they, 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 they draw inspiration. I, I tried it, you yeah. know. Um, I mean, then you got Marco Miniman playing along to verbiage, Yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, these guys are, they're all kind of part of that, to me anyway, part of that set of musicians who, who, who think that way. I, I wish yeah, I could think like that. It's, it's, the, it's these musicians who are so brilliant uh, and so, you know, curious that, you know, the, 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 normal, <laughs> the normal course of study of normal music that inspires most of us is just boring to them, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, anyway, wow. so it, it sounds like you, you had like an intensive, you know, sort of grad school or course of study just with Jeff. Yeah doing this yes um so did that kind of kick you in the ass to like did did that lead to you kind of entering the professional realm in earnest it did uh he as well as my sudden interest in you know the weckles and the binnies Mm -hmm. you know again that was right around that same time the same sort of three or four years you know i was realizing wow you know I don't have to hit the drums as hard. Yeah. I used to hit, you know, when guys like Pert and Bonham are your, you know, they're your heroes, you're probably going to be hitting really hard. That's what yeah. they did. And these guys, particularly Jeff, who was the first of all of them that I could sit down and watch in person, mm-hmm. where everybody else was just a video or a recording, I could actually, like, say, okay, wait, stop, do that again. You know, yeah. How are you doing that? And, and the big lesson I got was, okay, you need, these guys are playing with extreme dynamics. They mm-hmm. are they are whirring way down here in the triple piano level and then percolating with spikes of accents and yep. triple forte sportsandos all at the same time. And 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 that became almost a a a, a method for me of practice and it's where I realized that physics kind of works against you. And what I mean by that, and I used to teach this at AIM all the time, um, you know, what is it when you hit a drum that is causing it to be loud or soft? It's the force. Well, we were, we taught, we were taught force equals mass times speed. 
So it's how fast you hit that creates the volume. Mm -hmm. I would always test the students and say, okay, I'm going to hold the drumstick one inch above the drum. And then I'm going to hit it again from way up here. And I'd hold my hand over my head. Mm -hmm. Which one's likely to be louder? They would always say the one over my head. Right. Makes sense. So I'd trick them. I yeah. would pull, the, put my hand up over my head, and I would slow as I could descend it, and they would start to laugh, yeah. realizing, oh, it's not the distance; it's the sp it is the speed. Right. And you can, you can nail a drum from an inch up. Yeah. If you can get up the speed within that inch. Mm -hmm. The problem is, drummers have a hard time, myself included, have a hard time separating independent stroke speed. And limb speed. Mm -hmm. So when 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 the speed ramps up for loudness, the whole body speed also ramps up, which mm -hmm. generally results in rushing. Which is why every drummer I know speeds up when they get louder and slows down when they get softer. Mm -hmm. So it became an exercise for me to disjoin those two. Can I play fast and light? Can I play loud and slow? Yeah, that's a lot. Those two things are hard to me anyway. Right. And, um, time equals motion and motion equals time. And, and the, the effect on volume is separate. Yes. And so uh, later that would be, that would come to me in a different direction, um, via a Dave Weckl private session that he, I would pay him for, and he would videotape himself in his practice space mm -hmm. for an hour, showing me everything he had learned from Gruber, send me that tape. I would watch it. And instantly, and so that that then becomes why we have the space. These circular motions that seem at first glance to be, uh, what's the word? Inefficient. Yeah, we're wasting a lot of time moving. Uh -huh. No, we're not. This is how we deal with the extra momentum and the force that we might be generating. Yeah. By creating that space, we can allow for fluidity at any dynamic level. We just reduce that space as we get faster. Right. But that's how you can help shape the the, the the smoothness of whatever it is you're doing, regardless of the dynamic level. How did how did you get hooked up with Dallas Austin and and just kind of get into this pipeline of uh, so touring work and recording? So Skin Deep, that band. Yeah. Um, Dallas at the time had a brother named Claude, who was kind of like a talent scout. And somehow or another, I don't remember if we invited him, and if we did, I don't know who who among us knew him. Yeah. But he saw our very first performance at Avondale Town Cinema in 1992, oh, right October near. of 1992. Yeah. And uh, little did we know, Claude was there, or maybe we did know. All, he went back and told Dallas about us. And all of a sudden, all eyes were on us. He never signed the band, though. But in 94, two years later, he signed our singer, Terrence. Mm -hmm as a solo act on Rowdy Records by the name of T. Smith, right? That is his actual last name. We were brought in as the band. And our first placement was on the Fled motion picture soundtrack. Um, I think it was the first time ever that I could open up a record and see my name on the... A real record. Right. You know, see my name on the credit list, yeah, which yeah. was really cool. Um, and that was the beginning. He, he was like, oh, wow, that... Okay. I can I can use him, mm -hmm. and just it took a while, but over the course of a few years, I would pop in to do little sessions here and there. And then in 1996, right about the time the Olympics were happening, that that summer, I got called 
um, to move to Nashville for the summer where he put me up in a corporate apartment complete with like bedrooms and even wash machine and dryer. I mean, mm-hmm. it was full kitchen stocked and everything else basically to just live there and work on Deborah Killings record. And they just decided to get out of Atlanta to not be distracted. And every day we just went into Woodland studios in Nashville in the a room. And, you know, I would practice all day long and then at night we would work. Hmm. And, um, that's the beginning. That's, that's how it all started. And then after that, um, came joy, uh, Vega, Karen Wheeler from the brand new heavies, Monica, eventually TLC, Stevie Nicks, mm-hmm. a bunch of whoever he was working with, you know? Yeah. And that's, well, that's how it started. And this is something that other, other people on this podcast have said, like if you form a relationship with someone and they trust you, mm-hmm. whether it's a producer or an MD or whatever, um, what you know your your strengths stylistically um or technically um kind of take a back seat to the fact that they trust your process yeah. they trust your ears your you know, like you said you can take direction you can just yeah. show up and work yeah. um so rather than finding you know uh, a specialist for each one of those products. Like, who am I going to find that's just at the top of their game for this specific thing? It's like, oh no, I got Tom. He's going to show up. He's going to do great. That's um, exactly how it worked. Um, and and then he would fly to L.A. and move us all out there. We went out there to work on Pink and Samantha Ronson, yeah. Mark Ronson's sister, um, other motion picture soundtrack, things like that. Uh, he would. He would just take us. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. Did, did you find yourself in situations with him where, like, he would he would just like send you on something, and you would have a moment where you realize, like, oh shit, this is not my bag. I have to. <laughs> not with him. Okay, good. <laughs> he he. Uh, yeah, I don't really. That's a great question, but no, uh, that never happened with him. That always happened with Randy Hexter or Adam Nitti. <laughs> oh God, jeez, I got to count. Yeah. Oh man, yeah. uh, I got to I got to read that. Oh, you know. Yeah, but but no, with 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 it's funny with Dallas. Um, he he didn't read and write. I, I don't even know if he can. He, maybe he can. I don't know. I don't. I kind of don't think so because my process, speaking of processes, was always the same. Um, and in some cases, I would have to sign NDAs like don't go out of here singing this. Like we don't like TLC. You weren't, you, you had to pretend like you didn't hear it. Right. Nobody was allowed to know what that sounded like until February of 1999 when that album came out. But I would get into this, into the console room and I would, I, I was, I had my process and the guys that worked there knew that that process was always run the song three times. Mm-hmm. First, I'm listening for feel and vibe. Second, I'm scratching out, my chart usually just on a single sheet of blank paper and third time validating that chart right anything sticks out to me that I didn't catch maybe there'd be a fourth listen but mostly that was now it's time to go for a take Mm -hmm. and Dallas would take those charts and hang them on the wall he thought it looked like art (laughs) I was super flattered and honored by that yeah but it's kind of funny too. That's cool, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he, yeah, he really, he really 
thought it was he thought what I did was neat. Mm-hmm. Like I think he I think he actually liked the process that I it wasn't just about drums. It was this, you know, there was a big thing a bigger thing going on in my head uh, that that he didn't anticipate and I think he liked. Yeah. But he was definitely free. Like I was allowed to do my thing. Mm-hmm. And one time we 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 messed with him. I forget who the artist was, but um I started just kind of messing around with lots of little ghost strokes and d- with diminishing levels of volume and things like that, trying to emulate kind of a tape delay. Mm. And we printed it that way. And knowing he was going to hate it. And so he comes back into the room and he, he's poking around on the board and he's trying to figure out, like, where's that effect? You know, and he finally goes, what's with that echo? You know, and I was, we were, they all started busting up laughing. I, was, I just, I played that. He goes, do it again. Do it again right now. <laughs> I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> we knew he was going to hate it. But it was just funny to, you know, because I, I try to be real consistent with it. That was my bag. If I had to say I had a bag, my bag was taking whatever mashup of samples he would bring into the mix to create any groove. And when I say mashup, I'm talking 20 or 30 mm. Different items from slammed doors to typing sounds. Yeah. Everything went into those huge galloping grooves, yeah. man. And every once in a while, there'd be a note that wasn't quite lined up, but that would repeat every bar. I My bag was that I could pretty quickly assimilate that and nail it along with the track all the way through mm-hmm. with very few notes that didn't line up. Yeah. And so it was real easy for me to to emulate some kind of a plug-in right. that made him, that fooled him into thinking that it was a, an effect, you yeah. know. Um, and so that that's how we that's why that's how we got him that day. It was, it was it was fun, but uh, but yeah, that was that 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 was life in the studio with him, man. It would right. be it would be weeks at a time, yeah. you know, for for even just one song. Sometimes, wow. you know, just wow. watch it go down from from beginning to end. Right, right. And the fact that he, uh, you know, just kind of sent you on so many gigs with such a wide variety of artists, I think, is just a, a testament to what I was talking about. The fact that he trusted you, the fact yeah. that, you know, whatever your hands did and whatever your drum brain did wasn't really relevant to him. Yeah. He was like, I I trust his. Uh, process. I trust his results. Yeah, and it was always great to get that call, man. You know, it's like I don't know who it is, but I'm there. Right. I'll be there. Right. Done. That's you cool. Know? Yeah, it was. It was. Ama- it was an amazing ride. It's cool to have a relationship with that, like, like that. No matter what level it's on, you know, when that when that person calls, you're like, I'm in. I don't. You don't even question it. What, what Skin Deep provided was absolute, total soul funk. Like, the the real architects of that style. Yeah. And I was so oblivious. To the point, I remember being in it, downstairs in their basement. We were, we were practicing. 
And I was almost reduced to tears at one point. I was so I was so upset that I couldn't feel it. I mm-hmm. could not understand why I couldn't get it. None of this worked for me. I was hearing, and they were being really patient, which I think was was also part of the dilemmas. I, I almost wanted to just be slapped, you know, right. but they weren't. They were being nice. Yeah. And I'm like, oh god, I can't get this. I hate this. I, I... and I went home, and came back the next day, and somehow everything was different. And it never went back. Hmm. And they were like, what happened? I I don't know. (laughs) I think I just needed that emotional breakdown, really. I guess. I don't know. Uh I still don't know. But I never felt it differently since. And it suddenly was, it was suddenly open. I was seeing colors I hadn't seen before. Yeah. So to speak. Yeah. I I know Um, what you mean. And I couldn't undo that. And I'm thankful for it. I would never want to go back to that inability to feel or understand what, that music was intending us to feel and intending us to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, suffice it to say, game on. Yeah. We were up and running like we never looked back. It was like, finally. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I, I was overcome with that, you know. And so that ended up being what I wanted to do, which is why, um, you know, I'm driving around 285 a couple of years later when they were – rebuilding it for the soon to be summer Olympics right here in 96. I was driving around top end of 285 and TLC's creep came on, which had been released that year. And I felt that, mm-hmm. you know, the way it was supposed to be, you know, whereas maybe a year before I would have changed the channel, not getting it. Right. You know, it wasn't the lyric either. It was the, it was the vibe of the piece that yeah. still, when I hear it, I'm like, Oh, I love that. And I, I said, I'm going to play with them. It- Really? I did. Wow. And took five years. Yeah, yeah. But 1999, I was playing that song at the Budokan. Man, that's As a headliner. Yeah, yeah. So I want to get to how that happened, but just quickly, like, it's it's so cool, the process of opening up your ears and, and, you know, not to be too touchy-feely about it, but, like, opening up your heart to what music has to tell you and how... You know, at a certain point in your life, you might not be able to hear it. You might not be able to feel it. Yeah. Um, and then you come back to it later and you're like, oh, holy shit. This is... <laughs> yeah. The, the thing that comes to mind with me was uh, the meters. Mm. Like, I remember um, I got I got super into Jocko and I read the biography of Jocko. And there's multiple mentions of the meters in that book. Yeah. And um, there was a, a a scene recounted where Weather Report was playing, and and uh, George Porter Jr. came to the to the thing, and Joe Zavanul like met George Porter, and Jocko was like, "This guy's the basis for the meters," and Zavanul just like literally got on his knees. <laughs> so I'm reading this, and I'm like, "Well, shit, I got to listen to the meters." And I was in my early 20s, and I listened to it. And at the time, I was listening to Weather Report, I was listening to you know Crazier Fusion, mm-hmm. and nothing about the meters like seemed particularly interesting or whatever to me i was like well it's just kind of whatever okay and then i came back to it a few years later i was like oh shit oh zigaboo oh like oh i had the i had the audacity to respond the first time skin deep guys hipped me to like parliament funkadelic and i was like can you i can't even believe i'm about to say this but i'm gonna repeat it because i dared to say it back then Right, right i said all they're doing is this. <laughs> what an idiot. No, that's not all they're doing. Yeah. And and whatever I proceeded to bash out on the drums at that point was probably far from 
what was actually going on on those records. Right. But I, I you know, I just, but I didn't get it. And that's what happens when you try to, you know, indoc- help someone see something that they can't see, hear something that they can't hear, feel something that they can't feel. When they are confronted with that difficulty, um, often the response is bitter. Yeah. You know? And I fell victim to it right then, mm-hmm. you know, and it was like, well, that's nothing. Yeah. That's, that's the, are you kidding? I, I can play Dave Weckl. <laughs> right. <laughs> which, which I couldn't, yeah. but I was saying that, you know, right. I mean, I was just so ugly about it. And, and then, and then after you, you get it. And again, that seems like literally a 90 degree turn or maybe even a 180, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, instant. Um, you cringe when you think about what you said. Yeah. Cause it's like, Oh, you just you just didn't know, right? But, I mean, we've all said stupid shit when we were young and played stupid shit, and you know, failed to see and hear things. Yep. <laughs> I'm raising my glass. Yeah, of course. At every one of right. those. <laughs> yeah. And you know, 20 years from now, I, you know, we're probably going to look back at ourselves now and be oh, like, yeah, God. <laughs> right. You know, but at least, at least we'll be able to look back at this time and say, well. We understood what we didn't know. Sure. And we're open to learning new things, whereas back when I was a 21-year-old punk, yeah, I just, I, I don't think anybody could tell me anything, which right. is awful. That's the worst place to be. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And so teaching at AIM um, definitely helped me see things from the other side, because mm-hmm. now it was my job to open someone else's mind and... I had to remember how hard it was to open mine. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you come up with all manner of hopefully clever, not deceptive, but just clever ways to get somebody to see something. And you'd have a room full of people, by the way. None of them would require the same amount or the same level or the same type of instruction. Mm-hmm. This guy over here needs to see it. This guy over here needs uh, you to explain it. This girl over here actually maybe needs... Almost like you grab their hand while they've got the stick in their hand and you show, you know, almost like a tactile. Right. You know, uh, and, and on and on it goes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, some people just need words of, words of encouragement. You never know. So you end up coming up with all these different ways of trying to say the same thing. Yeah. And uh, I'm finding that in my teaching now. And, uh, you know, whether the, whether the student is eight years old or 50, mm-hmm. like I've, I'm not really an organized or disciplined enough person to have, um, you know, a set curriculum that, that, you know, every student goes through and like, first you do this, then you do this, that, and the other, like, I've never been that organized to put that together. But even if I was, I, I don't think it is the best way to teach because every student, like you said, every student has a different way of learning. And especially, you know, if you're teaching private lessons just for for kids or enthusiasts or whatever everybody's in it for a different reason right so if you hold them to one standard of like here's what you're going to do and here's why then most of them will not respond um one but if thing, you're if you're more in tune with how how people learn and what they want to learn and why then you're going to have more success teaching i agree with you on all of those accounts and <clears throat> anybody who's listening who happened to have had me for any classes or in a private instruction at AIM will remember this. I used to butt heads with the fac- uh, the administration all the time about that very thing. Mm. Uh, I refused to have a single height of a bar over which everyone must jump. Mm-hmm. For me, it was 
how much better are you at the end of this class than you were at the beginning of this class? I'm grading myself as much as I'm grading you. So, and this is something I got from Georgia State, honestly. Uh, I think they called it juries. Yeah. Where you would basically be, you know, it was, a, it seemed to me, if I understood it correctly, a measure of growth. Yeah. It wasn't a fixed number. So I decided to base my entire grading scale that way. Um, if you couldn't do a thing on day one and you could do that thing on day 90, you get an A. Yeah. Plus, even. What that meant was drummers who were not very good could end up with a better grade than naturally gifted drummers who were lazy. Right. And I thought that also was good. I wasn't going to give anybody a pass just because they can already do it. Mm-hmm. You know? So it was the level of growth. How much have you put into this? Well, a lot of the other teachers hated that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not how the real world is. You know, you might be right. Um, it hasn't been my experience, though. And you know what? They're going to they're gonna run into those roadblocks when they do. Mm-hmm. And maybe we'll get to that in, in these classes. But right now, I'm not trying to bludgeon them. I want them to learn. I don't want them to enjoy the process while we're at it. Right. So I'm the soft guy. And you, you say that like <laughs> other, other faculty members were like, that's not how the real world works. And in a, in a certain way they're right because the, you know, the, the outside world isn't going to sort of like help you along and give you an A for effort right. in that way. But for, for most gigs, like there's not, there's not like a checklist of skills that you have to know. It's you right. meet somebody, you start playing together, you show up, you, you have the skills you have, but then beyond that, it's how open are you to learning new things? How fast can you learn new things? Um, you know, what's your willingness to work hard? Are you a naturally gifted, lazy asshole? Or are you a marginally gifted, hardworking team player? Yeah. With a great attitude. Right. And gets along, you know, with a, a family vibe yeah. on a bus when it, the weather sucks. Sure. All those things count, right? And we would talk about that. And that was always my explanation. I mean, let's be real. You know, let's teach the kids what it is that is going to help them grow mm-hmm. and continue to be involved in that process. Again, I'm trying to teach them how to teach themselves. Right. Um, this was something that Gerard touched on when he was talking about his time at AIM was that um, you and the other teachers sort of, um, the, the, the year he spent at AIM wasn't a process of like acquiring all these skills and getting all this shit under his hands. It was more a year of compiling a list of stuff that he was going to have to teach himself and continue to learn for the rest of his life, basically. That's exactly right. And I mean, like most schools, you get dumped so much in your lap that Mm -hmm. that it's really all about just getting through it. Right. Right. You know, I mean, I'm in in online school right now. I got another year to finish this bachelor's that I started at Georgia State in 88. Wow. I just took 30 years off. (laughs) But, and I've switched majors, you know, I, I don't, feel like I need a music performance degree. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah, it's a business deal. Yeah. But a lot of the stuff that we're learning, you know, economic, macroeconomics, microeconomics, um, business finance, these are all, I have to say, I'm, I'm enthused about it, but I don't remember it. The yeah. next course, I've already kind of forgotten what I've learned before, but I've gotten through it. 
And that's kind of what we were doing to the students. We knew they weren't going to be able to retain it. Mm -hmm. It was just, hey, man, hammer, 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 get through this. And that right there was a good reason for me to not try to set some bar at an impossibly high level, Mm -hmm. knowing that only a few were going to do that, make that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and and so, uh, there, but there were other teachers that that didn't feel that way, and they had a lot of flunks. You know, people that would end up dropping out, and I'm like, that's not, gosh, it's a political nightmare. That's not good for the school. It's not good for the bottom line. It's it's not good for the kid. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know. There's going to be people listening to this that this, to just disagree with me, and that's fine. But I will forever feel the way I feel about it. I think mm-hmm. you know. Um, I, that, that was not my vibe. Yeah. And the music school thing in general, I mean, we've talked about it a bunch. There's so many routes to go. There's, you know, kind of the state school, big music department. There are conservatories where you do deep dives on, on yeah. really esoteric shit. Um, and then there's places like, like AIM or Musicians Institute that are more vocational in their approach, Very I much. think. Um, and, you know, I think there's... There's pros and cons to every one of those systems, and there's also pros and cons to like going to school versus not going to school. Yeah. Um, and I think it. it an, another thing that students don't really grasp is they don't they don't have a sense yet of what kind of learner they are, and I think a lot of students make the wrong choice about what kind of school to go to or whether or not to go to school at all. Mm. Um, and you know what to focus on when you're in school. I think I I made. I made some wrong choices <laughs> when I was in school and spent oh, yeah, a lot of time and money on on things that maybe my time and money would have been better spent on. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Um, well, I remember, uh, you know, by and large, you could generally divide a, a class of new drum students into two group, groups. One group would be the self-taught this was usually the larger group, by the way, self-taught musicians who maybe didn't know how to read Mm -hmm. versus a much smaller group of probably well-educated, maybe came from, we had guys that went to Berkeley and then would come here or Mm -hmm. guys that had gone to four-year colleges, graduated and come here, uh, well-educated, but maybe we're lacking improvisational skills or feel or the ability to think on the fly, which the self-taught guys had down mm-hmm. right that's that's how they learned mm-hmm. and each group had its challenge you know um i would i would look to the guys who were scholastically astute and say okay your challenge is going to be blending musically with the group um taking direction and instantly being able to maneuver you're playing according to that direction in other words everything these guys over here are good at you're gonna have to work on yeah then i would turn to the other group and say you got the exact same problem it's just inverted you can take direction you can instantly manipulate your parts that's how you've learned to do what you've done what you're gonna have to do your challenge is going to be taking what you already hear with your ears with these charts and try to somehow quickly associate what you're seeing with what it is you already feel. Yeah. Make that connection now because at some point, usually around quarter three, we're going to start handing you music that you're not going to be able to feel the first time around. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to rely by then on the sheet music or else you're going to be lost. Right. Please don't sleep on that right now. Yeah. This is the time to do it. It's also 
the same time that you're not going to want to do it because you don't feel like you have to. Yeah. yeah. You already get it. <laughs> Now's the time. Make yeah. that connection. Street smarts versus book smarts. And they have, right? You kind of need, I feel like it's a good idea to have both. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Have it, not need it, but have it. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at DrumSellers.com. So during the time that, like, you're you're touring with TLC from 98 to 2009. Yes. And doing a lot of recording at that time mm-hmm. also. This, it occurs to me, like, this 10 years, you know, represents basically the digital revolution, right? Yeah. So how did you sort of uh, adapt over that time, whether it was in the studio or live? How did, you know, that imposition on the music industry kind of affect what you did behind the drums? Good question. Um, I can remember being on tour in the hotel room waiting for LimeWire or Kazaa or any of these beginnings of file sharings to download for free what I hoped would be a high-quality track without viruses attached yeah. to them. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, yes, and so then by '09 my last gig with them in Japan by then everything was what it is now mm-hmm. pretty much yeah. I mean you know socials were blossoming Google had been around for a decade already you know uh, if I got the math right on that or close to it mm-hmm. you know if not a decade um, and and yeah I mean even how they counted sales seemed to be changing you know I have gold and platinum plaques hanging on my basement wall down in my studio that were much easier to get back then mm-hmm. than they are now if you can even get them i, I don't know I, I i'm sure i'm sure you can i just i don't know how that works now yeah. sound scan I don't, I don't i'm pretty far removed from that part of the game now because i'm not touring and recording with on that level anymore mm-hmm. but um as far as how i changed my approach to drumming. I don't think it did. I think I think I just found a way to maneuver my abilities in a different direction. For example, I started doing what a lot of drummers do, um, accepting tracks from afar over the internet. Mm-hmm. I already had a studio. I had I had a studio since the TLC days, in the beginning of that, mm-hmm. like late nineties, early two thousands. So I already was set up for, for recording. But back then it was ADATs. You know, people would mail an ADAT tape. By the way, I have the two black still. I think I still have them. Two blackface ADATs that Master Plan was recorded on. Oh, cool! Yeah, wow. How cool is that? Souvenirs. Artifacts. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I don't know how I ended up with them. Well, I know he gave them to me, but why I was chosen, I don't know. But but that was how people would send these VHS tapes to you, and you would format them and get your 46 minutes or whatever record time and, and 
do everything there and mail them. And that changed to internet delivery, right? Right. Um, file transfer protocols and FileZilla and all these other, you know, uh, FTP sites or programs, you know. Um, also, that was about the time that I started a family, you know. Yeah. When, but when we went to Japan, I had a six-year-old, a six-month-old baby. Wow. And that was actually part of the reason that that became my last tour. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to be away from the kid. And I, I knew that that's how that life would be if I didn't stop. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and it's that's it's heartbreaking to have to say goodbye to that. But I did what I wanted to do. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. I landed on these records that that went gold and platinum. These girls won Grammys. I got to tour the world, go out of the country. I did it. Yeah. You know? I, I got I never was on the cover of Modern Drummer, but I was in it a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> um Whatever, man. I got, you know, lifelong relationships with Yamaha, Zildjian, Vic Firth. You yeah, know, that's yeah. cool. Still with those companies today. And, um, you know, I play locally, weekly, have been for 13 years now at a church. Right. And I still take the occasional private lesson. Um, somebody comes in at, out of town and they're like, hey, man. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, of course... Internet drum tracks. Yeah. You know, that never stopped. Right, right. So it's just, I'm just not in the public eye as much anymore. Right. You know? And so uh, there's a couple things I want to ask about, like this transition in your career. Um, did the, um, do, you, do, you, do you just not kind of have the, the need to be in front of an audience anymore, to be in front of a live audience? I mean, I know you get that at church. Yeah, it's not the same. It's not the same. Uh-huh. Um, I do have a need for it, yeah. of course. Um I just don't know where I fit in mm-hmm. on social. I'll be brutally honest with you. I don't. I don't know how to do that like I should. Social media. Yeah, oh, we've talked about it ad nauseum. I don't know how to do. Like, I I called up a buddy of mine and was like, "Okay, you like hit fifty thousand. What do you? How do you do that? You know?" And he told me how he was doing it, and I did it and boosted my followership on Instagram from like two hundred to four thousand or something. Mm-hmm. Like within a couple of months, I was like, "Holy, wow, that actually works." But he stopped doing it about the same time I did. Um, it 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 wasn't a legitimate way to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I wasn't yeah. letting it happen organically and naturally. I wasn't doing it the right way. Right, and the followers you end up with are more random. I lose them. Yeah, faster than I gain them now. Yeah, yeah. And I, I I've just over the years seen it, and that's fine. I get it. Like I wish I could wash them away and start again. Right. I, I no offense to the followers who are there that did it on purpose but i i yeah i I feel like i did it wrong yeah and and i'm also uh i don't really enjoy the idea of playing a bunch of solos all the time but that is what gets the attention sure I, i just i don't see myself as that player right and i i went through a period of time where i tried to do that and i just felt like that's a lot of work it's more work than i feel like putting into it I feel like I'm copying. I feel like I'm not, again, not doing it right. Yeah. And and so with where I'm at in life now, you know, I'm in school. I got three boys. Yeah. Um, I do work in a variety of different mediums. You know, I got the church gig for live. I got the internet-based tracks at home. I got a lot of voiceover work. I do some marketing mm-hmm. for software companies and other holding companies um, that are selling, buying and selling Malls. Hmm. I mean, I'm 
sometimes called upon to help them market those yeah yeah billion dollar sales um I'm all over the place, and so I I don't really know. <laughs> so, but this is this is interesting because like I I asked you about playing live and being in front of a live audience, and and you immediately thought of like social media and mm-hmm. stuff. So, do you do you feel that in today's you know music industry or on on the scene or whatever that um, like having having a, a live presence, having regular gigs out in the world is is dependent and maybe too much so on having a social media game? Well, let me say it this way. I remember when, to get an endorsement, you had to be in the public eye on a stage. You had to be... Remo had a rule about... They wouldn't... I, they didn't bring me on until I had a gold record. Mm-hmm. I had to at least have a gold for them to even look at me. And then all of a sudden, boom. Right. Okay, you, you got a gold record. Here you go. There were those kinds of metrics that they were looking at now. The metrics are if you've got a big following right. on social. Um, I'm glad I got in when I did because yeah. I would never be able to get a deal with my little following. And you know what I mean? Yeah. So I I think that it has, I don't want to say supplanted, but it's definitely neck and neck, uh-huh. right? If you're and, 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 and interestingly enough, if you've already... If you're already on the road with a big artist, it's much easier for you to grow a big following on social than if you're not, mm-hmm. which is kind of where I'm at now. I'm not with mm-hmm. any big artist. And they, these socials weren't around back then. Right. So I, I, I just missed both of those. Right. And so you don't, you obviously don't have a desire to be out on the road. Not you anymore. Know, but, but do you also not have a desire to just like go out to the clubs in Atlanta and go play with Randy? At, oh, <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah. Like, oh, man. Have you been listening to my conversations at home? <laughs> my wife, she loves live music and is always mad because, you know, I married a musician and you don't play. <laughs> I feel so bad. Uh, so, yes, no, absolutely. I, I, I do miss that. I do mm-hmm. miss that. And I don't have any legitimate excuse or good reason for it. I just fell well, out. You're plenty busy with other stuff, but if, you know. Yeah, we can always say that, and yeah. it's true, but the, the the truth of the matter is I should be out there more, and I know that, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it, it is a thorn in my side a little bit. But wh- why, think, should, why should you be? Because you feel you have to, or because it's something you feel is genuinely missing I for, think, for yourself? I think all of those things. I think, I, I think that it's what I, it was the first love, like I said in the, yeah. in the beginning, yeah, it was yeah. the, the first aha moment of this is what I'm supposed to be doing, um, also my wife would prefer it if i if we did more of that mm-hmm. um and yeah i do feel like i owe it to myself and anybody who might be missing whatever i added to that community by not being there mm-hmm. uh i don't i don't know what the percentage of all that is but yeah. together that is kind of the big coalesced group of reasons that i feel like yeah i ought to be out there yeah it's so it's kind of like in the back of your mind yeah oh sure sure, i'm having a similar experience right now not in terms of playing live because i do plenty of that but in terms of getting back to some jazz Mm -hmm. um because my my whole background like from college on was in jazz all through my 20s i lived in kansas city um and i turned away from it you know almost completely um especially over the last five years especially since the time i've been in atlanta um but I'm kind of in the same way. It's in the back of your mind, like to get back out there and play in, yeah. in Atlanta. It's it's in the back of my mind to just like get 
get some jazz going again. Like mm. find that touch, find that language, yeah. go to, you know, go see your friends at some jam sessions, go hit yes. up Justin Chazarek for a brush lesson. <laughs> no, totally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of, right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, if, if nothing else, just get at least immerse yourself as a listener. Yeah. In it. Like I, I stopped even doing that, you yeah. know, and that's not right. You know, mm-hmm. you could give yourself all these excuses that why, as to why, but it, it you know, yeah, it's a thorn. Right. It's like you know you ought to be doing this. Yeah, know? yeah. And so that yeah, that 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 stings a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes. Yeah. You'll get back out there, I think you will. I hope so. Once you finish this degree and Oof. once once one of your kids is away at college. You're right. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. When, <laughs> wait, right. When 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 one or one or the other of us isn't required at all times, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, she, by the way, my wife is in school at Georgia Tech. Wow. Getting a master's in cybersecurity. So Jesus. Oh man, we're we're stretched, right? Yeah. But but not in a bad way. It's right. just we. But every waking moment, you know, yeah, uh, of our day is consumed with something, you know, that that we're chasing, right. whatever that may be, you right, know. Right. So, fortunately, I was able to, you know, clear away a, a whole morning here. Yeah, you know, I appreciate perfect. it. No, it's great. I was like, oh, this that's great. This, I'm not doing anything. I don't have any commitments that morning. Let's right. do that. Yeah, yeah. Know? Um, so the other thing I'm wondering about kind of this, this transition in your career, I mean, A, I, I was wondering why, but it sounds like it, you know, you made the decision to just stay home and spend time with your family. And, mm-hmm. but so, so why voiceover? Like how, why did that get started? I'm so glad you asked that question because I can finally explain how that happened. When TLC got done touring, my first reaction was I got to get back out there. Mm-hmm. Maybe not with them, but somebody. Yeah. And I started realizing that the EPK, Electronic Press Kit, basically a, a video bio, was all the rage in mm-hmm. 2000. Yeah. And I thought I needed to get one of those so I could market myself to all these management companies and record companies, you know. So I went to Image Mill, who created all of the video footage for the TLC tour. And I had also remembered that they had interviewed me at some point on the road. And I thought, I'll get them to make one. So I went to them and they said, yeah, 20 grand. Duh. Right. <laughs> I was like, yeah, um, no. <laughs> so I kind of went out of there really not happy about how things were turning out. And so I, I thought about it for a little while and I went to a Walden bookstore Remember Walden Books? Sort of. Yeah. B. <laughs> Dalton, all those guys. Yeah, yeah. And bought digital video editing for dummies for like 24 bucks. Wow. And it came with a limited edition of Adobe Premiere and Adobe After Effects. And so I had had my, I had taken my own footage on the road. So I, I copied the, the style of that Emmy Award winning show Behind the Music, mm-hmm. VH1. Yeah. And I conducted an interview with myself. Wow. I pretended there was a guy like you right. asking me these questions. And I answered all the questions that I thought I needed to say. And then I wrote a script to fill in everything else to kind of tell my story in about eight minutes. Hired a VO guy to come in and read that and assembled that in, a, in the course of that summer and went back, I don't know, in July or something. And this is in the interest of going after another touring gig. Yes. Okay. All about... Just trying to get work as a drummer. Play some more drums. Didn't want to play, pay $20,000 for these guys to do right, it. Right, right. 
So I go back there just to kind of, uh, hey, is this good? <laughs> you know, before I send this out, I trust you, you know. Sorry I didn't pay you, but <laughs> can you grade this? You yeah. know, I did it myself. Yeah. <laughs> and they watched it, didn't say a word. I'm like, they hate it. Mm. It was over. And Mill turned to me and said, you made that? I said, yeah. He gave me the freaking keys to the establishment, set me up with an alarm code, wow. and said, your first job here is to cut the EPK for Charlie Wilson from the Gap Band, who's releasing his album. Wow. <sighs> I guess this is what I'm doing. Right. <laughs> now, I still sent that EPK out um, to Mark St. Louis, who took TLC to Japan in 99, just a year earlier, mm -hmm. or two years earlier, or something like that. Um he was working with Leanne Rhymes, and Leanne saw the tape and said, I want that guy. So it worked. Yeah. The problem is that tour never happened. Uh, ah, and it would have been so lucrative. Oh, oh the yeah. money he talked about. That's probably I the was, height of her like thing, right? Oh, you're talking, I think it was, well, let's see, $30,000 a month as a drummer. Yeah, yeah. That's what that would have paid in 2000. Wow. <laughs> But all I knew was, wow, I can make videos, apparently. This is great. So I started cutting videos while sending these demos out, uh, the, the EPKs out, and cut my chops in the video world. I cut all kinds of stuff together. Um, and at some point, Mill said, hey, man, I've got this old video deck here. Uh, things are going to be slowing down, and I'm moving in a different direction. Why don't you take this video deck? Start your company. Hmm. I was like, oh, okay. Why not? So I did. Took that deck and hooked up with a buddy of mine who I thought might have a keen business sense, which he did. Also a great graphic artist. Mm -hmm. I thought that would be a, a benefit to the video company. Yeah. And the stupidly named Nighttime Studios Incorporated was born. <laughs> and it is a corporation, an S, S corporation. And um, our first job was a $10,000 two-minute video for printed circuit boards. <laughs> you know, and we thought we were, we were like, okay, it's on, man. Yeah, yeah. And so, thus, my foray into video production and animation began and VO came along accidentally. You know, we were, we would hire Gene Barrett and a bunch of other local legends to voice these projects. But sometimes you get clients that would say, well, that's, why don't you do it? Mm -hmm. And I'd get in there and I'd read it and it sucked. I had no idea what I was doing, but they were happy. And so a couple more years, I'm doing a lot more of that. A guy I met over at Image Mill is now branched off, and he's doing all kinds of things for Fox Sports and Florida News Channel, Cleveland Indians. He's like, hey, man, how close can you get to the John Facenda read for, from the NFL films because the Southeastern Conference needs something like that? <laughs> and I'm like, give me the script. Right, right. And I gave, I gave him one. He goes, ah, try it again. Two, ah, third time, bingo. Yeah, yeah. And that dude... From that free read turned into, well, what was that? I think that might have been 05 or 06 or something like that. So I've been doing SEC recap videos ever since. I just finished one. Wow. Yeah. So it, it's, again, where the leaf blows. Right. What, whatever. Hit, hit me with that SEC. <laughs> 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 you would be like, you know, 
Daniel Colt McCoy. <laughs> you know. <laughs> this multi-sport phenom from rural Tuscola, Texas. That's you know, so great. That's that's what it was. Right. And, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, I still do it. It gives me goosebumps, yeah, yeah. you know, because... Facenda was the man. And well, I'm I'm kind of seeing like a parallel between this and drumming because so often we're asked or we take it upon ourselves to just like like you did with Weckl, like get inside that sound, yeah, you know, yep. and and alter you know alter your voice, manipulate your voice, and now you're literally manipulating. It's your like voice. an accent, right? It's yeah. like coming up with an accent, mm-hmm. and uh, and so you know, two years ago, Crown Royal heard one of those and called me directly They're, well the production company working for them called me directly and said you know NFL just released the ban on spirits in terms of advertising mm-hmm. during football games and Super Bowl so Crown Royal wants to get in on this and we want the NFL sound so you're hired nice and so I got to work with Crown freaking Royal yeah, I mean yeah. come on man and I, <laughs> so I wrote my buddy his name is Ty Towers, and he runs a company called NLX Design, for anybody who's interested. He was the guy that originally asked me to do that, read. And I'm like, look what you did. Look what you gave me, man. I mean, <laughs> you could have called anybody. Right. You didn't have to call me. It was also his uh, script that got me an Emmy, well, the actual Emmy Award. Yeah. He sent me a script for Cleveland. It was It was called Fans for Life, and it was about... How, st- how much of a struggle their teams have, and and it's really easy to jump on the bandwagon of of, of the winning team. But here we, you know, we stick to our own, even in the down times, you right. know, and which are all the time, all the time. <laughs> and 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 so I I read that like that kind of despondent but hopeful and like almost like yeah, piss off if right, you're not right. if you're not on our side, you know. Yeah. And I he called me up in a drunken stupor. Hey, you want an Emmy? You know, <laughs> did you call the right guy? Right, Cause right. what are you talking about? I hadn't even been paid for the spot. I didn't even, it was, it was an audition. Wow. It ended up being picked. The producer put me in the running for an Emmy and I won, man. That's he was cool. like, I guess I ought to pay you. Right. <laughs> Just give me the freaking trophy, dude. Right, it's fine. Right. Right. Whatever. Just bring it over here. <laughs> yeah. That's I had cool. to wait. A, I had to wait a week for him to, get home yeah it was the hardest seven days i ever yeah i couldn't wait you know right right oh you're halfway to an egot man ralph (laughs) (laughs) i never i didn't get i never got a grammy i people sometimes people will mistakenly call it a grammy they don't know and i'm like i don't ever correct them like in front of people but i'll be like oh it's an emmy it's just an emmy but didn't i mean tlc won a grammy they did uh I can say that I pre- I played on it. I right. contributed to it, but I sadly don't have one of those yeah. trophies in my house. Yeah, you know, Weckl yeah. does. Sure. He has a Grammy sitting on his mantle. Fokker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But, um, but, yeah, that was... These are all just amazing gifts that literally just fell out of the sky, man. Well, I didn't you have were... any... Th- I don't feel like I had anything to do with it. But when they came along, you were open to them, and you were willing to do the work to kind of take advantage of them, and... And, and I just think, you know, I, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while because your career is just a cool example of how um, you, you don't have to get wrapped up in in uh, a certain identity as a, as a drummer. I think yeah. so often, like, our ego and our pride, and I've been guilty of it, like, 
you know, that's, that's part of who I am. That's what I do. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't think I'm open enough or hardworking enough to just like switch gears like that. If I was, mm. if I was given the opportunity, I think, you know, just my, my pride and my stubbornness might say like, no, I'm a drummer. I just want to play drums. Well, that kicks in too, though, man. I mean, like back when I was trying to play solos on Instagram, you know, right. there's, there's that there's like, Oh, you're, you, you you're known for being able to play Adam Nitty stuff, so you can't put out anything that sucks. Right. It, it better be just riddled with speed and, you know, that's ridiculous. I mean, what, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't even like that headspace, man. Right. I want to be able to get up there and, and, and suck. Right. And play something that's maybe not perfect and like, like it always is. Let's, let's be real. Mm-hmm. Nothing I play is ever perfect. And, you know, and, and but, for some reason, I had this idea that I had to, you know, oh, no, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. That's not good enough. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Wait a minute. Why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. This is not who I ever was. I don't want to be this guy. Well, it's interesting. I, I asked earlier about, like, you know, the the process of kind of figuring out who you're not behind the drums. And, and yeah. you know, I was talking about it in terms of like is there a particular style or there particular Mm -hmm. drummers that whose influence you just never kind of whatever but what i'm hearing you say is that at at a certain point um you know this this aspect of um you know being a drummer in the 21st century and whatever we think that requires there was a point at which you were like that's not me i'm not interested in and even that is i hate to say it even that was reluctant because Mm -hmm. I don't want to ever be the old guy that can't learn new tricks, right? right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. so I'm literally playing ping pong in my head with myself. Like mm-hmm. I'm, for every reason I can think not to do it, I can come up with another reason. Well, bullshit, you should, right? You know, you see what I mean? Yeah. So like it, ah, and and, and almost like analysis paralysis. Although totally, I, although I try not to fall victim to it, it it does happen well and social media just promotes it like if if i ever want to start really doubting myself i'll spend a lot of time on instagram (laughs) you know same here and i mean you know although i read yesterday that there are musicians being caught speeding things up (laughs) whoa how come I didn't think of that? Like, not that right. I would ever want to do that, but how, how, how did I, it didn't occur to me that that could be happening right. with Facetune and all this other stuff. People are changing the way they look. Why wouldn't they change the way they sound and then sell that? Yeah. Oh, that's horrifying. <laughs> it's like a modern day auto tune, except it's in the palm of our friggin' hands. Right. I am. That scares me to death. Like yeah. I, I don't it, want any part of that. Right. But it just reinforces the, the fact that social media isn't real. It's not real life. Like, whether or not people are manipulating their shit to speed it up or whatever. Yeah. Like, I, I just, however much time I spend on, on Instagram, even when I'm on it, I try to remind myself, like, this isn't real life. You might come across <laughs> some cool shit here, some stuff yeah. that makes you laugh, maybe yeah. some stuff that inspires you. Yeah. But, th- like... This is not real life. <laughs> and if there's ever been an impetus to, is that the right word? An, a kick in the ass yeah. to get out and see live music, there it is. Because sure. guess what? Ain't nobody speeding nothing up on stage. Right. You either do it or you don't. Right. And that was kind of where I came from. I, I would record Nitty's songs or Hexter's songs as many times as I had to to get it right try to do it in a single take even mm-hmm. that didn't always happen but most of the time it did um 
I can say for sure that Schizo was done in one track, one take. <laughs> uh, after a hundred. Yeah. You see what I mean? But the one right. that, that did it, the one that ended up on the record, is a complete take mm-hmm. with no punch. I I did have that much that that much pride, you know. But look what it did. I mean, I got to work on something a hundred times in a row. Yeah, you know that seems nuts, but that's what I wanted to do. I would have rather for me the <laughs> in economic terms the opportunity cost <laughs> the opportunity cost associated with nailing a track in one time in one take was the hundred rehearsals prior to that, right. and it was that opportunity cost was wasn't that high to me mm-hmm. that that felt that felt good right. that felt like a a a, a balance a, a nice trade for the ability to claim that mm-hmm. you know yeah um, but that it you know that's part of that's part of social media is that you know you don't see that part you see the result you see somebody's hundredth take yeah. and when you see a bunch of videos of like this hundredth take and that hundredth take and this you you know you get the impression that oh this is just what this guy does every day and you start telling yourself if i can't show up at my you know wedding gig or whatever it is i'm playing that night and sound like that then i'm failing um and you can't think that i mean dude perfect you familiar with these guys yeah okay they let the cat out of the bag right they they admitted hey man we got to do these shots we'll work for days on this 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 basketball shot a day's Right, because the one take they get is just magic, and then they can put that up. And then when you put them back to back to back to back to back to back to back the way they do, right? um, Cool. At least they're not pretending that they just walk around with these magical freaking Siler esque abilities from heroes, right? Who could just throw something and mentally make it go wherever you know? Right, right. Nah, man. And it makes their reactions all the more genuine because when you when you take into account like they've been trying to get this for a day and they finally get it and they're like, dude. Shit! Oh my God! You know. It's... Well, and 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 what would your reaction be if you were able to do that all the time? Boredom, totally. <laughs> right? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So, yeah, that's why I I say the opportunity cost for nailing a track once, mm-hmm. where I jump up and down just like that yeah, at the yeah. end, is worth the hundred takes prior. Right. Yeah. Now we don't waste the studio's time with those hundred takes. Right. That's what practice is for in the in the shed. But, yeah. But yeah, I, I yeah, lest anyone think that I like or anybody else really, but certainly not me. I, I can't just sit down and play this stuff. You know, I got yeah. to work that crap up just like anybody else. Right. You know? Right. Um, well, man, it was it was so cool to to hear about your your career. I mean, the you know the 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 experience you've had as a player and the transition you've made into um, the the voiceover thing. It's just it's it's inspiring and and cool. Um, Thank you. And uh, we've talked a lot about, you know, side hustles on the podcast and other interests mm-hmm. that, you know, whether it's a hobby or an extra source of income. Yeah. Um, but it's it's just really cool to to see someone. You know, you're busier than shit with all kinds of different, you know, you've got the three kids and you've got your new, new degree. And to say nothing of the fact that the fucking shape you're in, like... <laughs> It's unreal. Thank you. you I work you, really hard at that. You're you're one of these guys I look at. I mean, speaking of Instagram, like not not from a playing perspective. I look at your Instagram and I'm like, does this guy have 32 hours in every day? Like where, <laughs> you know, yeah, you're, you're just doing I, uh, you're doing a lot, and it's really cool. That poor that poor channel is a reflection of my 
lack of focus, though, <laughs> you know, and, and what'll happen is I work out every other day. Mm-hmm. And so, and a lot of times I'm filming it just like I did drums, you yeah. know, I'm trying to look for mistakes right, and, right. And, and, and fix what I can't feel, mm-hmm. but I can see it. Yeah. Right. Try to make those connections. Uh, and so what'll happen is a couple of days will go by and I'm like, I haven't posted anything. Oh, let me go grab some workout crap and stick that up there. Yeah. You know, um, it's really almost, I almost feel guilty, you know, for not having more VO stuff, not having more drumistic playing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and these are all things that I'm aiming to change. But, um, but anyway, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm digressing. Thank you though, for the, for noticing, Yeah, you know, yeah. cause I, I do, I put a lot of, I put a lot of work in, into the, the health and fitness thing. Yeah. It's, it's obvious. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but uh, again, thanks. Thanks for talking, and yeah. I hope I hope to see you back out back out there somewhere. Me too. Sometime soon. I think I think it's going to happen. The fact that it's you know been in the back of your mind for a while, I, mm-hmm. I don't I don't think you can fight it off for, mm. for too much longer. And the Atlanta community looks forward to oh, uh, to your return. On, Thank on you. The live scene. Um, so do I, and I appreciate you saying that. And uh, yeah, it's a long time overdue. Yeah. So cool. We'll see you out there, man. All right. Thanks again to Tom. Hope you enjoyed that talk. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so on Facebook and Instagram or through our homepage at workingdrummer.net. On that homepage, you'll also see links for our Patreon and PayPal. We hope you'll see fit to support us in that way. We'll be taking next week off for the holiday, but Matt Krause will be back with you on the first Thursday of 2020, so hope you'll be back with us too. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.